You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. This is the first of a two-parter on the Islamic State. More specifically, the glue that joins both episodes together is a series of over 50 tactical interrogation reports from 2008, a form of battlefield intelligence. Okay, so why are these reports significant? Sounds a bit niche. Well, the individual being interrogated in 2008, al-Maula, would go on to become the second leader and so-called caliph of the Islamic State in 2019. In part one, we learn more about the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point and about our guest, Daniel Milton, the director of research there, who has extensively analyzed the reports. And I would encourage you to read some of the reports or to look at Daniel's analysis. Daniel has a PhD from Florida State University and has been cited in outlets such as the New York Times, the BBC and NBC News. He regularly briefs all levels of the United States government including the intelligence community and the Department of Defense. In this episode, we discuss Islamic State's retreat from a quasi-state to a shadowy insurgency, the ideological feud between Islamic State and Al-Qaeda, battlefield intelligence, such as collected exploitable material and tactical interrogation reports, and the genesis of West Point's Combating Terrorism Center after 9-11 and what it does in the larger scheme of things. Next week, in part two, we discuss the fact that Al-Maula was, among other things, an informant who willingly gave up his compatriots, leading to the nickname, among some, the Canary Caliph, i.e. he sang like a bird. I wondered if just to start off, just for our listeners that are a little bit 
rusty on this or that are not keeping up with it in the news. A few years back, we heard a lot about the Islamic State. We don't hear as much about them now. What's the state of the field just now? Like, what's Islamic State up to? How big are they? Where are they? What size are they? Give us just a kind of broad starting point and then we can zero in afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in March of 2019, we experienced the final battle or what we thought was the final battle or or pitched was the final battle against the Islamic State in uh, the Syrian city of Baghuz. And this campaign resulted in uh, a declaration of victory against the Islamic State from a territorial perspective. At their highlight, at the high watermark, they had held a significant amount of territory in Iraq and Syria and had received the pledges of allegiance of a wide number of groups from around the world. This March 2019 period was seen as uh, a tipping point in that military campaign. And since that point, the coalition uh, to defeat ISIS has continued efforts against them, as the United States has as well. It just hasn't been as prominent in, uh, in terms of a focus, in part because they don't control the territory that they used to. However, they have reverted to more of the shadowy insurgency campaign that we might be familiar with from the 2004 to 2011 time period in Iraq, where there are certainly individuals who are interested in carrying out operations, and they do so. Operations are still occurring on a nearly daily basis. Uh, small-scale attacks, some larger. Unfortunately, as we've seen, the appeal of the group uh, remains internationally. Uh, Islamic State's Khorasan province carried out a a terrible suicide bombing that resulted in a number of deaths of U.S. service personnel and uh, Afghan civilians. And we've seen their expansion into places like Africa, uh, Mali, Mozambique, uh, and other venues where we would have hoped in March of 2019, that we were seeing kind of the the complete downslide of the organization, and that hasn't fully been the case. And so they still exist in many parts of the world and continue to carry out operations. The biggest difference is perhaps that they don't have that territorial control that we were more familiar with from 2014 to 2018. And who declared victory in 2019? So uh, the declaration of victory was uh, in part... Uh, from local governments. So the Iraqi government uh, was very pleased, uh, particularly once they were ejected from Mosul. And the United States uh, declared a territorial kind of victory over them, uh, having ejected them from their last formal area of control. Uh, Again, the U.S. government still continues to put emphasis on the group, uh, but from that point in time saw a shift from major military operations uh, that had existed up until that point. And many people, when they think of Islamic State, they think of a group that wants to control territory compared to, say, Al-Qaeda, which is more amorphous and operates in the the grey zones and the spaces. Are they still attached to particular pieces of real estate in Africa or in other countries, or are they more... uh, terrorist organization operating on and underneath the surface of everyday life it varies although i think it is much more 
the kind of shadowy underneath the the surface operations these days, there are still pockets where they will make efforts to carry out governance activities. Um, and so, you know, most of what we see these days is uh, is that uh, shadowy insurgent kind of pop up, carry out an operation, and then maybe fade away for a little while, uh, as opposed to the governance piece. However, we still think as a research community, when we look at the Islamic State, that there is a desire to, to re-engage in that governance piece at some point in time when the conditions are right. I think that they haven't left that desire behind, even though the, the kind of battlefield hasn't uh, gone their way in some, of those, uh, in some of those areas that they controlled. I think that ultimately they are looking for the next place to, to try to come back and do that. And they don't have any territory now in Iraq or Syria, is that correct? In terms of territorial control, it is limited. Uh, there are some places, I think, in eastern Syria that are still uh, heavily uh, populated by Islamic State personnel. But the formal level of control that we had seen doesn't exist uh, in that same way. I found it quite interesting when Islamic State were at their zenith, uh, the way that the Sykes-Picot line, which the border between Syria and Iraq that was drawn up by Sykes and Picot, the French and the British, it was almost uh, that colonial boundary exists no more. Now we're like a unified group of people. But yeah, I wondered as someone that has specialized on this area, I wondered if you could offer a couple of nuggets on the Sykes-Picot line and the Islamic State when it was at its height. So that's actually a very interesting point because they did make, as you'll recall, a big deal when they took over the border between Iraq and Syria of destroying the old Sykes-Picot line. Uh, There's actually some propaganda where they've got bulldozers literally moving the dirt of the border to say that it doesn't exist anymore. And so I think that they made an, an effort to show uh, that they were destroying those old lines. Interestingly, however, when you look at some of the captured documents from the group, in many regards, they continued to govern it separately as Iraq and Syria. And so even though they had, uh, uh, I think, a large propaganda value in and destroying the border administratively, they still governed in many respects those two places separately, um, which I think is an interesting kind yeah, of no, contradiction. That, yeah, no, that's really fascinating. Yeah, it was symbolic to get rid of the border and there was some historical significance behind it. But, but practically. Come, well, practically, yeah. I want to drill down into the captured documents, but before we get there, just again, just briefly while we're just making it broad before we dive in, what's the difference between Al-Qaeda and Islamic State? So for the people that are not following this closely, like why don't they get along? Some people they just look at this and they say, of course they should get along. They both have very diff- sunny organizations. They're both uh, quite radical interpretations of Islamic texts and Islamic history. Why are they not uh, besties? Um, I think it's an interesting question because for all the reasons you mentioned, it seems like there ought to be more common ground than what divides. But the things that divide are pretty critical uh, from an ideological perspective. I think that at its very basic level, uh, 
the Islamic State saw itself as advancing the idea of the caliphate in a much more rapid here and now version than Al-Qaeda did. It's not that Al-Qaeda didn't support the idea of the caliphate, of course, but that was much more of a future uh, undefined period. And as Islamic State really felt like it was their responsibility to bring it about in the here and now. And so I think that that piece was a critical distinction, the desire for the uh, reinvigoration of the Islamic Caliphate in the present moment. And then I think the other thing that is commonly referred to is we think about Al-Qaeda and Islamic State as both very violent organizations that are interested in exacting justice or retribution or whatever on their enemies. But the reality of the situation is that Islamic State had a much broader group of individuals against which it was willing to exercise violence as opposed to Al-Qaeda. Even from the beginning, part of bin Laden's vision for leading the global jihadist movement was to be more of the leader of a team of organizations and groups and to be the vanguard of a movement as opposed to being the movement itself. And so he was willing to work with organizations that maybe didn't see the world exactly the same way that he did, but had that common vision and purpose. Whereas Islamic State was much more of a my way or the highway type organization. And so I think that those differences, both the idea of the caliphate and the willingness to target a wider range of uh, individuals with violence is what really set them apart. Because you even find in other uh, captured documents that had been released in the very early days of the Islamic State's predecessor organization, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was led by Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, you find letters back and forth between bin Laden and Zarwahiri and Zarqawi saying, you're a little bit too brutal. You're really doing damage to our cause because you're targeting such a broad range of individuals with such brutal methods. Can you back it up a little bit? And so you even see in that kind of early time frame, in the kind of 2004, 2005 time frame, this distinction playing out between these two groups. And Zarqawi was a real thug, basically, wasn't he? He certainly had origins more as, uh, more as a kind of a, a thug and a criminal, uh, which is part of where his, some would refer to it as a conversion or radicalization process took place, was in prison. But I think that it's also important to be cognizant of the fact that I do, to the extent that I can do so sitting here at a very safe distance, both in terms of space and time, uh, that his conversion and zealotry seemed very real and genuine. Right? He wasn't uh, pursuing these goals simply because he was a thug. He was pursuing them because he believed in them. And I think that I think that that willingness to pursue goals at all costs is part of what he has passed on as an organizational trait uh, to other followers and members who exercise that same level of devotion, albeit I think misguided, but he exercised that same level to uh, toward their goals. He's an interesting bridging figure between both organizations because if I remember correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, he's yeah, he was in communication with bin Laden. He saw himself as carrying on the the struggle in Iraq 
but then he's seen as a almost like a John the Baptist for uh, Islamic State. He's seen as someone that prepared the way, so, someone that set up a lineage that they then went on to draw upon. So tell us a little bit more maybe about that bridge, but also, again, just for just for our listeners, okay, so you disagree about who the targets are, you disagree about when it wants to happen, but does that really mean that you have to get all kinetic? Uh, do you have to start, does that have to get violent? Like, okay, they've got different maybe aims and starting points and so forth, but why come to blows over this stuff? I think in part it's because of what it means if Islamic State is the group that is going to bring about the caliphate. That means not just that they are more active or more forward-leaning, but if they are truly the group that is going to establish that state according to their interpretation of Sharia law, all others must pledge allegiance to them according to their interpretation of Islamic jurisprudence, Islamic law, all others must pledge allegiance to them and be subordinate to them. And so their very emphasis on the state set up the conditions of contention. It's interesting because Zawahiri, bin Laden, spent a lot of time trying to fix the rift. But at a certain point, Islamic state's interpretation of the need for a caliphate drove a wedge in between them because once the caliphate was the primary objective, Al-Qaeda either had to become subservient to that idea and join the mission or go off on its own. And once they decided to go off on their own, that willingness to engage against a broader set of targets, which is what the Islamic State also had, became applied against Al-Qaeda, right? You're now on the outside of our circle here, and you've decided that you're not going to help us pursue this Islamic State project, you're now on the enemy side, right? Again, a very my way or the highway, if you're not with us, you're against us type approach. And it quickly, to your point, it quickly went kinetic, right? They wanted <laughs> to go after each other after that point, and that's where it got pretty brutal, for sure. It's quite interesting to me as a historian to look at some of these rifts and tensions and compare them to, say, the same rifts and tensions in the history of Marxism or communism in uh, the late 19th century. You know, there's debates about what did Marx really mean, you know? Was it the Marx of the Communist Manifesto or the Marx of Das Kapital? And then in the 20th century in the Soviet Union, Stalin's got one view, Trotsky's got another here at the Spy Museum. We have the ice axe that was used to kill Trotsky because of that ideological rift. So it's quite interesting to me the way that these organizations that can get so, yeah, so violent and so vociferous over what should on the surface be a pretty common set of goals. And it's interesting because, you know, we've been talking about it in the context of a conflict between Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. But as the organization, Islamic State organization evolves and grows 
and then it experiences tension that ultimately lead to the military defeat that we talked about in March of 2019. Within the group, they begin to experience some of those rifts and tensions as well. As individuals start to look and blame each other for the bad fortune that they're experiencing, the different solutions to that problem expose further rifts within the group of individuals who think that part of the challenge is that we're just not zealous enough and we need to be more zealous. And so even within Islamic State, we start to see some of those, uh, those fault lines occur uh, and they start to kill their own members uh, and go after each other. And this is one of the things that comes through in some of the documents that we're going to go on to speak about in a few minutes. You see some of the organizational and institutional rifts and personalities and so forth, like every organization, right? Uh, the US Army, the British government, the Soviet Union, it doesn't matter. You always get these institutional dynamics and personalities that add another layer of complexity onto it. But these documents help to cast some light on some of those complexities, right? I think that's one of my favorite things about looking at this type of material is that it really gives an inside view to organizations that are clandestine and usually not seen very well from the outside. But these documents paint a very vivid picture of struggles, challenges, bureaucratic minutiae, whatever the case might be, which is not typically how we think about these organizations, but these documents really allow us to see that. And I, I, that's one of the things I, I think is so valuable about them. Mm -hmm. Just before we get more into the documents, just a couple of like final points here. On the target for each of the organizations, we hear, or we used to hear about Al-Qaeda, that there was the near enemy, the autocrats, the dictators that were in power in Islamic countries, uh, quite often they, they cozied up to the Soviet Union or they cozied up to the United States or Great Britain and they were the near enemy. But then Al-Qaeda began to focus on the far enemy, the United States. Uh, you know, it's this type of thinking that leads to 9-11. What is there a term for what the Islamic State were focused on? Because it's neither what well, kind of is near enemy and far enemy, but, but it's something else as well. I think that the near enemy, far enemy distinction in terms of what groups are willing to dedicate resources to in terms of their execution of violence is, is definitely an important question. One from a security perspective that we ought to be focused on. The more interested they are in harming the far enemy, uh, the more we need to be interested in protecting ourselves and going after them. But most of the time, I think it is, you know, one way of thinking of it is that groups like these have as their first priority to survive. And often that will dictate that they focus on the enemy that is right around them, going after them, causing them to not be able to survive. To the extent that they are able to free themselves from that pressure, either because they have a safe haven or because their near enemies don't care about them as much. They then are able to concentrate on the far enemy. Al-Qaeda, I think, came to view the, the far enemy as critical to being even able to upend the near enemy. And so they focused on them uh, to the extent that they could uh, once pressure was placed on their safe haven in Afghanistan. 
they were less, I think, capable of doing that, even though they still maintained the desire. Islamic State seems to have been willing to take all enemies on at all, at all the time. But even there, despite the tragedy of attacks in France, the United States, Belgium, wherever those attacks were occurring, 99% of the organization's effort was on local conflict. Most of the things that they did were targeting individuals in the vicinity in an effort to establish that state. And they did dedicate uh, some resources toward the far enemy, but it was never anywhere near a top organizational priority in that sense from a resource allocation perspective. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And one final point, just on Khorasan. So Islamic State originally around Iraq and Syria, but now we hear about Islamic State Khorasan. And I find it quite quite interesting, this name Khorasan, because it's a older name that is used for a, a an unmodern geographical area, right? And I believe that Khorasan means land from where the sun comes from or land to the land of the sun or something like that. So tell us a lot about more about, about that Islamic State Khorasan. How is that related to what some of our listeners will think of as the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria? Yeah, during that 2014 time period when the Islamic State was able to declare its caliphate and to say that it had achieved the legal requirements of the Islamic State. As we discussed earlier, it then became incumbent in the group's interpretation of jurisprudence to, for other entities and individuals to pledge allegiance to them. And we started to see that happen all over the world. One of the places that had up until that point in time been one of the foremost conflicts for individuals interested in jihad and the establishment of a caliphate or an emirate of, of any sort was Afghanistan. And I think that the appeal of the Islamic State's message combined with the victories that it had experienced on the ground caused groups around the world to say, maybe we should consider these guys. And individuals uh, in Afghanistan and Pakistan who had previously been aligned with a number of groups, whether the Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban, the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, the IMU, started to look and say, maybe we should consider aligning ourselves with these guys. They seem to be the up-and-comers. And so individuals started to break off and to form new groups 
which then pledged allegiance to the Islamic State uh, in Iraq and Syria. And so that is kind of, in a very brief moment, the, the beginnings of Islamic State Khorasan. Over time, that organization has managed to establish some footholds, uh, but was also targeted pretty heavily by U.S. counterterrorism efforts. And now with the withdrawal of U.S. forces, finds itself in conflict with the Taliban and is continuing to try to push its narrative that Taliban has sold out. They're becoming just another example of a group that once it gets in a place of governance is willing to curry favor with China and Russia and others and therefore is not a representation of what a true Islamic state would be. So that's why you should consider us the alternative now. And which is an interesting perspective, right? For, for a long time, that was, the, that was the Taliban's narrative is we are the better alternative. Now that they're in power, that narrative is being pushed by Islamic State Khorasan. Mm. What's your view on the idea that we're still in a long war? Is this, is this a generational struggle that's still going to continue? Because many of the people who thought certain things on September the 10th, 2001, still think those things. It's not quite something that can just be reduced to the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan. Or do you think we're now turning a corner and we're getting back into great power competition and terrorism's a, a kind of still important, of course, but it's not as important as it was previously? I think that after September 11th, the, the tragedy and the shock of what we all experienced on that day collectively as a nation pushed us to think about terrorist organizations in a light that we hadn't previously thought about them. And we dedicated significant amounts of energy, resources, the lives of American men and women who were willing to serve to, to fight against those organizations and to do so at a pretty high level for the better part of 18 years. I think there was a lot of good intention behind focusing so much of our energy and effort on these organizations, and I think we achieved some tangible results. However, the United States has a number of interests and threats to those interests abroad it was probably due at some point that we rebalanced a little bit away from terrorism towards the consideration of other potential rivals, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, whoever. And I think that that's good. I think that that's healthy for our national security to be able to consider and to prepare for that wide range of threats. Where I am concerned is that we will rebalance so far in the other direction that we will deprioritize terrorism. Unfortunately, even though we might want to be done with the terrorists, they are not done with us. And they continue to threaten us and our allies and our interests. And so we need to maintain the ability to go after them because to your point, unfortunately, it is more of a long war than a short war. There are generations of individuals who will take up that banner. And if we let our guard down too much, 
if we don't prioritize it as a national security effort, I worry that we will experience a tragedy that could have been avoided. I worry that we will be right back into some of the same challenges that we faced on September 12th, which again is not to say that we have to put every egg in that basket of counterterrorism, but we ought to keep a few. We ought to put some of them there. So let's begin to narrow our focus now. So just piggybacking on that, that's where the counterterrorism center at West Point comes from, right? So that's where you work and I'm going to put in a nice introduction at the beginning introducing you, but tell us a little bit more about about your background and about the Counterterrorism Centre and then we'll start digging into these documents. Okay, I'll start with the the Combating Terrorism Centre because I think that it is probably the more interesting story and then I'll be happy to share a couple of uh, things about my own background. But the Combating Terrorism Centre is an entity that exists at the United States Military Academy and was formed after September 11th because it was recognized this is going to be a long war. This is going to be a fight that we are engaged in for a long time. And other than a couple of ad hoc courses, individuals who were going to West Point and were going to be graduating as second lieutenants in the United States Army didn't have any curriculum focused on terrorism. And so the Combating Terrorism Center was initially stood up to be that educational component for cadets so that they could better understand this fight that they were going to be a part of. Over time, the Combating Terrorism Center evolved to not only have that teaching mission, but also more of a research mission to say, okay, if this is going to be a long war, it would be helpful if we have some dedicated analysis of the group's of their tendencies, of their structures, of their organizations, so that we can better understand how to protect ourselves against them. And so the CTC uh, evolved into kind of this organization that has a very unique educational mission there at the academy, but also has a broader footprint in the research community focused on understanding terrorism. So that's That's, the CTC. That's helpful. So they were putting on classes initially for undergraduate cadets and then they began to move into doing reach applied research as well that's correct that's correct and that was seen really it was a great thing because part of what ended up happening is you had this uh, unique cycle happening where your engagements in the classroom would lead to ideas that you would then be able to research and feed back into your classroom instruction and there's really a great thing because You know, the cadets were a unique audience. There's a lot of wonderful, smart people interested in studying terrorism at universities around the world. But the cadets were a unique audience because their interest was very practical. I am going to graduate and then be on the front lines of this fight. And so I need to understand it. And and that kind of was a a unique thing for the instructors who said, well, if these guys are going to be on the front lines fighting it, I need to really be able to understand and bring some unique knowledge to them so that they're better prepared for that. Uh, and so it was a, an interesting, I think, uh, relationship there. That makes sense. If you know you're going to get pushed out of the aircraft, you're going to pay more attention in parachute class. That's, that's, that's the hope, right? That's the hope. The, the cadets end up being so uh, structured with activities that paying attention is always a challenge, but they, are, they do a good job at it. <laughs> 
And tell us a little bit more about your background. How did you end up at the CTC and how do you how did you end up interested in this particular topic? That's a great question. So um, the CTC has always had as its approach to personnel that blending individuals of diverse backgrounds is the most helpful way to ensure that we successfully carry out that education and research mission. And so there's individuals at CTC who have more of a military background, uh, some individuals who have more of a policy background who maybe worked in intelligence analysis, uh, some who have worked at think tanks before. I am more of an academic background. So I uh, started a PhD in political science at Florida State University and was interested in studying terrorism from the academic perspective. As I got further and further into my research, it was a subject that just really drew me in because of all of the things we've been talking about today. You've got organizational dynamics, you've got individual leadership uh, influences, you've got global politics that affects how the group thinks. And just the intersection of all those things was so fascinating to me. And I was able to get a tenure track position once I was done, but always felt that there was something missing from my ability to be an effective teacher and researcher. And I think what I thought was missing was the real practical side of terrorism studies. I wanted to see more about how it applied at the kind of the, the daily level, you know, okay, we're studying it in theory, but what's the practice? And it was just a stroke of good fortune, I suppose, that a job at the CTC opened up and I looked at it and I thought, wow, that's a really unique place where maybe I can get a little bit closer. I mean, make no, no bones about it. I'm still a nerd. That's, that's who I am. Me too. Uh, <laughs> always good to find common cause. Um, but, uh, but it was an opportunity to really see at a closer level how counterterrorism policy was made and formed and played out, how it affected the the individuals that I was able to rub shoulders with at West Point within the Department of Defense and the intelligence community and to be able to refine my research based on that understanding. Because at the end of the day, I wanted my research to be relevant. I wanted the things that I was studying to be helpful to individuals who were doing the really difficult work. Let's zero in on the documents we're speaking about today. Let's discuss the Almala documents and... What are they? So just as a quick intro, one of the things that the Combating Terrorism Center was able to do because of its unique position at the United States Military Academy was it had very special relationships with the Department of Defense. And so as we had a larger footprint on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Department of Defense was carrying out operations against terrorist organizations that resulted in the collection of all types of material. This material, generally speaking, is known as collected exploitable material. So think of soldiers going through a house and finding a computer and taking that and trying to learn what's on it. Think about a stack of documents and papers. Also think about an individual who was detained by U.S. forces and was then interrogated. All of that collected exploitable material became an important part of how we could understand these organizations. 
and their strengths and their weaknesses. And so these particular documents are what we call tactical interrogation reports or TIRs. They are summaries of interrogation sessions that occurred after Almala was detained by U.S. military forces in January of 2008. And so every time the interrogator would go in, have questions, a discussion, tried to build rapport, whatever the case would, would be, at the end of that session, there would be a summary written of what was discussed and what happened. And, and that's where these documents came from is those summaries were created after those sessions and revealed a lot about uh, the organization. Is collectible exploitable material, is that just not another name for intelligence? What's the difference? <laughs> is, this, is this a new DOD acronym or, do, is there a, or is there a discernible difference? Well, there is always a DOD acronym, okay. right? There's always a DOD acronym. But I think this refers specifically to perhaps the, the closest um, would be raw intelligence, right? This is not material that is necessarily informative in and of itself. It's not in any sort of a finished form, but it's something that we were able to obtain through usually battlefield operations that we can then turn around and try to make more sense of, to figure out a little bit more about the organization, who's important. Um, And so it is definitely a part of intelligence, generally speaking, but the collected exploitable material or CEM tends to refer to those things that we obtain following those types of operations uh, that we carry out on the battlefield. And who's collecting this uh, collected exploitable material? So I assume soldiers on the ground and so forth, but what, what role do military intelligence play in all of this? And why are they the people that are not analyzing it? Why is it going to point instead? That's a great question. So there's obviously a lot of individuals who are doing the the hard work of collecting this material on the ground, you know, as a, as a raid is carried out, as something happens. And all of that material does go into the regular intelligence analysis process, where your individuals in the intelligence community uh, at all of the different agencies are looking at it for their own equities, whether it's with a financial eye or an operational eye or maybe a media eye and trying to understand how it can inform their mission. What we have found is that for good reason, all of those members of the intelligence community tend to be, not exclusively, but tend to be focused on what we would refer to in the military as the five meter target. They're so busy as they need to be with figuring out how to stop the next plot, how to identify the next link in the chain, that that's their focus. Yet this material has tremendous value for broader understanding. And so West Point is seen as a partner that has the time, space, and luxury to sit back and look at some of those broader dynamics. It's not because the intelligence community is not smart enough, it's because they have a lot of stuff on their plate already. And so West Point was seen as a place where it could get a little bit more of that scrutiny from a group of academics who have uh, the ability to, to take a step back and look at it 
for for those dynamics. And how is your research normally disseminated other than coming on the world's premier intelligence-related podcast? Well, I should point out that it, that is yeah. that is the that is the most important of all the methods, right? Of course, uh, I, I I think that's a, that's a critical one. And you have your own in-house journal, Sentinel, right? So we try to do the best that we can to disseminate our material through both products that we create and release, like CTC Sentinel, uh, which is a monthly publication that comes out and does analysis of both. CEM, but also uh, other types of information uh, that scholars and analysts are looking at around the world. We also have in-house reports that we release and publicize on our website. And one of the things that I think is particularly unique when it comes to the CEM piece is that we have tried to make sure that all of that material is made available for people to see for themselves. So on the CTC's website, there's a specific section called the Harmony Program, and it contains the raw documents that have been collected that we are able to release to the public. And so when we publish a report, we put the material there so that people not only have our conclusions and analysis, but they can do their own and look at that material. And so we try to use our website as as a platform to push our material out. We also have a social media presence. And as part of the terrorism studies community, we try our very best to, to be a part of that community at conferences and presentations. And so our dissemination is is through those types of uh, those types of mediums. The best place <laughs> the best place is the SpyCast podcast. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTLSpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at SpyHistorian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.